Today's program is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking your calls. I'm currently leading a Moody Bible Institute open line trip in Israel. So while I'm away, I thought you'd enjoy hearing a special open line we recorded in Israel on a previous Moody tour. This program takes you back to 2018, when President Mark Job led his first trip with Moody to Israel. I hope you enjoy this rebroadcast, and I'll be back next week to answer your Bible questions. Thanks for listening. Live from Jerusalem, it's Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Greetings from the city of the great king. You're listening to a special live audience edition of Open Line. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. This is Moody Radio's Bible study across America and across the globe. It's aired not only in the United States, but also in India. I'm Michael Rydonik, Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and I'm coming to you today from Jerusalem. Uh, We're at the Dan Hotel on Mount Scopus, and for the last couple of weeks, I've been in, in here in Israel with 225 of my closest friends, and we have been seeing the land and learning the Bible on the Moody Bible tour of the Holy Land, and it's just been great, the Moody Bible Land Tour. And uh, today, the tour participants are asking the questions. So today is not the day to call in. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening in. But we are asking you to join our tour of the Bible today. And our audience right here in Jerusalem, they will be the ones asking the questions. So no calls today. But we are pre-recording this, and this will you'll be hearing a live audience recorded with their questions. As always, there's phenomenal Moody Radio people making this happen, led by Chris Seagard. He's giving oversight to all of this. Uh, He's handling all things technical. Also, there's Doug Hastings and Ray Hashley and Heather Seagard and probably others that I'm not aware of. But it's just a terrific time, and I'm grateful for them being here. I want you to get yourselves a a cup of coffee and get your Bibles out, because we're going to study the scriptures together. We are going to start with questions, and I see a Moody graduate walking up to the microphone. Go ahead. My name is Alex, and I'm from Naperville, Illinois. It's been amazing to look at what the city of Jerusalem looked like many, many years ago. Can you describe a little bit about what the new Jerusalem will look like um, in the new heaven and new earth? Okay. Let's see. Well, one of the things that when we look at the future, we see that Jerusalem uh, will be elevated in the Messianic kingdom. There's going to be, when Jesus returns, when the Lord Jesus comes back, he will establish his throne in Jerusalem and reign here for a thousand years. We know that from Revelation 20, but there are many, many, many passages in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament speaking of his Messianic kingdom. And it says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the Temple Mount, will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And it talks about all the nations stream to it. So we know there'll be an elevated position for Jerusalem in the Messianic Kingdom. When we look at the New Jerusalem, it's kind of a tough thing. You know, you, you look at it and you start getting the dimensions. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, uh, I, see, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and then it talks about, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. 
and it begins to describe this city. It says the city had massive high wall, 12 gates, 12 angels were at the gates. On the gates, names were inscribed, the names of the 12 tribes <clears throat> of Israel. Uh, and it's just described with all these different uh, gems. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, and it includes jasper and sapphire and emerald and sardonyx. I don't even know what a sardonyx is. And uh, uh, carnelian and chrysolite and beryl and topaz and others and amethyst. And it's, so I've heard some people say we can't take this literally. I think there is something literal about it, but I don't know the details. I just know that there's going to be a new creation and it's going to be a literal creation. The new heavens and the new earth is not what people have thought in the past that it's sort of like hanging out on a cloud with a harp floating around. There will be a material new creation that we will live in and there will be a new Jerusalem and that Jerusalem will be glorious and large and, and just breathtakingly beautiful. So I don't know the exact details because it depends on how much of this we take in Revelation 21 to be literal and how much is figurative. But here's what I know the message is about this. It's going to be glorious and beautiful. So think of the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy is in the poppy field and uh, she starts to fall asleep. Remember the the wicked witch sends poppies, and then snow comes, and she wakes up, and she looks up, and she sees the glorious emerald city, and she's, she and her compatriots have their breath taken away because it is so beautiful and so glorious in the distance. That is what it will be like at the New Jerusalem. It will be breathtakingly beautiful, and God, the Messiah, the Son of God, will be reigning from there over us for eternity. Yes, my name is Dawn from North Aurora, Illinois. Why did Jesus' teaching ministry only last three years? Why didn't he teach longer on earth? He was a really good teacher. <laughs> I think about it. I, I, I've been teaching at Moody for 26 years. And I haven't had near the impact he did. <laughs> Although I did have some students that wanted to kill me. Uh, I don't know why God establishes the time that he does. Uh, but it was, when you think about it, when the Messiah comes, you would expect that just a week or two would be all that he would need for people to, to respond. But actually... He gave three and a half years. He started slowly. He began to teach. And then about uh, whenever, when, when the rejection of the Messiah happens in Matthew 12 by the leadership, when they, the leadership of Israel, and they say that he teaches, that he, do, he, he does his miracles by the power of the evil one, that's sort of the official rejection. And Jesus then begins to teach in parables. And the purpose of those parables in Matthew 13 is to reveal truth, to those who are open, and to conceal truth to those who are resistant. And so what you have is three and a half years. It seems to be like God thought that was the right amount of time, but I want to encourage you that his teaching ministry did not end. And the reason I say that, even though the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus took place three and a half years in, there's a passage in Ephesians 2 which talks about the proclamation of the message 
of the unity of Jew and non-Jew together, the Jew and Gentile in the body, in the one new man, the body of Messiah, the body of Christ, okay? And it says that when Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those who are far away are the Gentiles. Those who are near are the Jews, because Jewish people had the Hebrew Bible, they had the message of the God of Israel, they were nearer, but they both needed to come to know Jesus. And it says that Jesus preached to those who were far, those who were near. Well, can you show me where Jesus went preaching to Gentiles? It was very rare. He healed the Syrophoenician woman, he healed the man with the, uh, with the legion of demons within him, he cast out those demons, but he did not preach to many Gentiles. And scholars have really puzzled over this verse where it says he came and preached to those who are far and those who are near. And the answer is he did preach to them through the apostles. Peter's the first to go to the Gentiles, and, and he preached to the Gentiles through Paul's ministry, the apostle to the uncircumcised. And he continues to preach to those who are far and those who are near through you and through me. So his teaching ministry has expanded further and further. So uh, that's what I would say. He didn't need all that time because he can speak through us. So, okay, you know what we're going to do is we're going to take a break now, and then we're going to come back with many, many more questions because we've got great questions lined up. Thanks for that good one. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. If you have a question, remember, you're going to hear it probably asked by someone right here in our live studio audience. Stay right there. We'll be back in just a moment with more of your questions. Genuine godly maturity is the goal of the spiritual life. Although... <laughs> That's easier said than achieved. We tend to go from one extreme to another with the hope of experiencing maturity. That's why I want to send you a practical and biblical book, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. You can request this classic today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Every weekend, OpenLine is here to help you understand God, the Bible, and the spiritual life. You ask the questions, and I try to answer straight from Scripture. When you become a Kitchen Table partner, you're not only keeping this program on the radio and Internet, you're helping others to hear the truth, and you'll receive exclusive benefits like regular Bible study moments by me offering insight and encouragement. Become a Kitchen Table partner by calling 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. This is Michael Rydelnik reminding you that you're listening to a special pre-recorded edition of Open Line. So our phone lines are not open today, but please enjoy the rest of the program right here on Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Welcome back to Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. I am so glad you're here with me. Remember, you can, uh, you're listening to a live audience recorded in Jerusalem. We're doing a pre-recorded special edition of Open Line from the Moody Bible Institute Tour of Israel. Isn't that great? And this audience, they have channeled all your questions into their mind, and they're asking them for you. So don't call today. 
you're just listening to them. They didn't really do that, I'm just saying it. But, uh, but they, the questions are representative of the questions you call in with and they're going to ask them. If you'd like to ask a question, all you have to do, if you're listening, is go to openlineradio.org. There's a link there that says, ask Michael a question. And you click on that, you can fill out a form and that question will get in the mailbag and we'll get, it, get to it in upcoming weeks. And we are gonna go right back to questions right now. My name is uh, Graham from Palm Beach, Florida. Um, please explain why the Bible is essentially silent on the life of Jesus until he started his ministry at age 30. His birth was heralded as a major event. Then the only other story is when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple in Jerusalem. It's all we need to know. The Bible was not given to satisfy our curiosity. I find that many, many questions that I have about the Bible are not really questions about what it means. They're questions about, well, I'm curious about this, and I'm curious about that, and what will I look like in my new glorified body? You know, will I have hair? <laughs> will I be tall? Will I be 30? You know, how old will I, you know? And God doesn't think we need to know that. And so I think that there are many things that we are curious about that the God determined we, don't, we just don't need to know that. And in the superintending of the scriptures, he left out material that we're inquisitive about. That's one thing. Secondly, I really believe that part of the reason that the adolescence and the childhood of Jesus are left out and his young adulthood is because he was just so ordinary. He just looked like everybody else. Now, I can't imagine what it was like to be his brother, you know, or the parent that says, you know, we just never have to scold Jesus, you know. <laughs> the others, they're rotten, but Jesus is so good. And, uh, but I think it's because he was so ordinary and his life wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like some of the apocryphal stories that come out, you know, where, where, there's terrible things that Jesus does when someone crosses him. People fall dead and birds are flying around and doing all these strange things in the apocryphal books. That wasn't what it was like. Jesus was so regular, ordinary. He's working in the shop with his father, the stonemason or carpenter, Joseph. It's just so regular that it wasn't exceptional. And I think his birth was exceptional, so that's recorded. And that 12-year-old in the temple, talking with the leaders of Israel, that really must have provoked some thought. I like that story. It's one of my favorite stories because I left my son at services when I was a pastor twice. Not once, <laughs> but twice. And uh, had to run back and find my eight-year-old son. So uh, I guess I would say that, that I can relate to that one, but it was really exceptional to have a 12-year-old uh, son who's able to talk with the leaders, the temple leaders and the religious leaders and, and communicate with them. So it was exceptional, and that's why it got recorded. Everything else was pretty ordinary. My name is John, and I'm from Akron, Ohio. And my question is, uh, how many miracles did Jesus perform in Jerusalem? And I'm wondering why so few, because I know there weren't many. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how many were performed. I don't have that. Uh, I'm looking at Ben right now. Ben, will you tell me? Ben Wilson's here. He's, he's a gospel 
specialist. Uh, he's, he's holding up three fingers. No, that wasn't right. He, even he got it wrong. Uh, no, he didn't do that. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that there were a limited number of miracles that Jesus did. When I look at the end of the Gospel of John, what John tells us, and it's not just talking about Jerusalem, it's talking about Jesus' ministry. It says that if they recorded all the things that Jesus did, then no books could contain it. Contain it. It says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, the seven of them in the Gospel of John, so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so what that is saying is that the books of the world could not contain all that Jesus did. And so they had to be selective. And for example, in the Gospel of John, those miracles were chosen deliberately to highlight the deity and authority and, uh, of the Lord Jesus and to indicate that he is the Messiah. When you look at it, it says, so that the purpose was to have people read this book, these seven signs, and believe what? That Jesus, and that's referring to his humanity, it's his earthly name, is the Messiah, that's referring to his royalty, he's the promised son of David, is the son of God, that's his deity. So it's to believe that the God-man is the Messiah, the, God, the king, and that as a result of believing in that, we'll have life. And so I don't think we need more miracles recorded, although there were many, many more. What we need is to read these better and experience the benefits of knowing them. So, uh, but I don't know why uh, they, they chose this, but I think they're pretty powerful just to read those seven, don't you think? So I think that's enough. Yes? My name is Priscilla Micho, and I'm, I'm from Chicago. And I'm, I'm Dr. Mike, who was the Mark that wrote the Book of Mark in the New Testament? Who wrote the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament? Uh, okay, that's a great question. Uh, I want to recommend a book to everyone. It's called Why Four Gospels by David Allen Black. Uh, I love that book. It's a little book, and it, it's not a super scholarly book. It's a great scholar who wrote it, but he wrote it for ordinary people like me to read, and I really find that helpful. And uh, it explains why there, are not just, why there isn't just one big book, but there are four separate Gospels. I find it really helpful. It seems to me that he is accurate. He sees the Gospel of Mark as a reflection of Peter. Uh, according to tradition, Peter went to Rome. He gave a message uh, about the story of the life of Jesus, and there was a John Mark who was with him, uh, a, uh, a young man sort of serving him as a, an assistant who wrote it all down, and that book becomes the Gospel of Mark. He's the same John Mark, I believe, that assisted Paul and welched out on him and bailed on the, on the first missionary journey. Then Paul didn't want to take him back on the second, and so as a result of that, uh, there was a split between Barnabas and, and Saul and Paul, and so that's who it was, and he wrote, but the authority of the Gospel of Mark, which was received immediately, was because it was under the authority or the, the sort of the, it was a reflection of Peter's writings, and so that's who I think it was. And by the way, Paul at the end says, send Mark, because I have need of him, so Paul learned his lesson. 
My name is Bob, mm -hmm. and I'm here from South Sudan, where I serve as a missionary. Welcome. Wow. That's great. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Peter declares that the church is a chosen people, <clears throat> a royal priesthood, a holy nation, language with allusion to God's original covenant with the children of Israel. How can we now understand Peter's presentation of the church's identity as God's chosen people in relation to God's continued relationship with Jewish peoples and with the modern state of Israel? Okay, uh, let's start before we get to 1 Peter, uh, to Romans chapter 11, where Paul reaffirms that although the Jewish people have not received the Messiah and it actually have opposed the gospel that they remain chosen. In Romans 11, 28 and 29, it says, regarding the gospel, and he's talking here in the context about Jewish people, they are enemies for your advantage. So it's saying that the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership had led the people to reject the Messiah and they are actually opposed to the gospel. They're not enemies of God, it doesn't say that, but they are enemies, they're opposed to the gospel. So this is talking about unbelieving Israel. And it says of them, but regarding election, which is just a big word for chosenness, uh, but regarding chosenness, they are loved because of, God, of, because of their forefathers. And so the word love is also the word, it's the language of choice. Uh, it says in Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And Paul repeats that in Romans 9. And so what that is saying is, Jacob have I chosen, Esau I've rejected. So he, when it talks about they are loved, it's again, language of choice. And he's saying that they remain chosen. Now that doesn't provide eternal life. It doesn't provide spiritual uh, relationship with God. What that provides is the national gifts that God gave Israel and the calling to represent him as a nation. Even if they weren't carrying it out, that remains true because he goes on to say, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. And so those gifts that are mentioned, you can go back and look at Romans 9, 4, and 5, those gifts are listed there and those have never been taken away from Israel. So what I'm beginning by saying is that the idea that the Jewish people, even though they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah for the most part, and it may even resist that message, remain beloved and chosen by God. Okay, I think that's pretty clear from Scripture. And I don't think Peter disagrees. One of the things that you see is that very often the language that God uses about Israel, this is the second point I want to make, the language that God uses about Israel, he often speaks specifically about Jewish believers. Now, I know that this has come under some dispute by some modern scholars, but traditionally, 1 Peter was understood to be a, an epistle written to the early Jewish followers of Jesus. And it says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus the Messiah, to the temporary residents of the dispersion. The word dispersion is a technical term for the Jews scattered across the world. And so he is talking, and he talks about uh, the, those in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus the Messiah. The point he is making is he is writing to Jewish people in the dispersion who are believers in Jesus. 
And then he says in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen, it says race in my version, I don't like that, I think a chosen people would be a better translation, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, that's an allusion back to the book of Hosea, where Hosea has a child who, because of Israel's disobedience, the child represents Israel as called Loami, not my people. Uh, once, uh, but now you are God's people. That's also promised that when the Messiah comes, they would be his people again. Uh, once you had not received mercy, like Lo Ruhema in the book of Hosea, you had not received mercy, but now you have. He's talking specifically here, not to the church at large, but he's talking to the remnant of Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel, who have come to know him, uh, the Messiah, when, when they believed in him. So I, I don't think that's, re- I think the church in Revelation is called a nation of priests, but in this context, when it talks about my people, it's talking specifically about Jewish believers. So we're going to be right back with a special talk with Dr. Mark Job, president of Moody Bible Institute. Don't go away. We'll be right back. One of my favorite theology professors of all time was Charles Ryrie. He could take high-level biblical teaching and make it simple enough for me to understand. That's what he's done with his classic book, Balancing the Christian Life. Dr. Ryrie takes the truths of spiritual living and makes them easy to comprehend and practical to live out. You can request it today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. We're so glad that FEBC partners with OpenLine with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All I've Heard with Ed Cannon, you'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. This is Michael Rydelnik here to remind you that you are listening to a pre-recorded edition of Open Line. Our phone lines are not open today, but please enjoy the rest of this hour as we head back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Welcome back to a special edition of, uh, a special Jerusalem edition of Open Line with me, Michael Rydelnik. Before we get back to questions, I want to thank many of you for joining me every week, right here around the radio kitchen table. You've become kitchen table regulars. And the reason I know that is many people write in and say, I listen every week. And some of you who are here in the live audience have said, I listen every week. You're kitchen table regulars. And now if you're listening, you can become something more. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month, helping me to keep on giving people answers straight from Scripture. A benefit to becoming a kitchen table partner is you'll receive a bi-weekly email from me, and I'm promising you I really am writing it. It's called a Bible study moment, and what I'll do is I'll either share a Bible study tip or maybe answer a common Bible question. Mostly what I want to do is help you walk 
help you in your walk with the Lord. And so if you become a kitchen table partner, you'll get that. Also, if you become a partner for $30 a month or more, you'll receive 50% off anything in the Moody Publishers catalog, including the Moody Bible Commentary. That's a great deal. Don't miss that. Well, call today if you want to become a kitchen table partner. All you have to do is call 888-644-7122 or just go to openlineradio.org and sign up to become a kitchen, par kitchen table partner today. And joining me right now is the new president, Dr. Mark Joe. This is not your first trip to Israel? No, just but it's only my second trip. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm a newbie. Yeah, and so is there anything that's really standing out to you about, about uh, being here? You know, it's been a phenomenal trip to... You know, the first time I came, I felt like I was drinking out of a wa water hose. Yeah. Just so much coming at you. So this time, I feel like I've been able to digest a little bit more, uh, see a little bit more, bring the pieces together. And, um, you know, I, I guess what stands out to me the first time and the second time is that it's so amazing to be in places, especially where Jesus walked. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the other day, I was able to share a, a few thoughts near the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, it was a powerful thing to think that Jesus wrestled with the Father somewhere around here. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what tree it was under, yeah. but we know the place. And, and it's just powerful to, to, to think Jesus was seeing this skyline. He was looking at Jerusalem from this perspective while he was praying and wrestling before the Father. It's just an amazing feeling. Yeah, you know, I have a friend who, when we went to Jerusalem with him the first time, he went to the southern steps, and he went by the steps by the Pool of Siloam. And those are steps that we can be reasonably assured yeah. that the Lord Jesus walked on. And so he was walking along those steps, sliding his feet along <laughs> all those steps, because he was trying to make sure he walked where Jesus walked. Yeah. And and so, oh, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, it, it does give you a different perspective when you read the Bible. I always feel like when we're here in Israel, when then you go back to the Bible, it makes it go from like black and white to color or to high def or something like that, because it doesn't change the meaning, obviously, of the Bible. You understand the Bible by, wow, reading it. But it does give you a different look. And like you say, looking over Jerusalem, it's just kind of powerful. It is. Yeah. You know, the other thing that strikes me being in Jerusalem, is that how deeply embedded uh, different re religious values are in different segments of the population. Mm -hmm. And we were by the Western Wall uh, two days ago, I believe it was, and to see the Orthodox Jews uh, praying, having the Scripture open, you know, rocking back and forth, and with the um, phylacteries, phylacteries on, yeah. on their head. And just I thought, wow, where would we see that in America, really? I mean, I know there's communities. My but... neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. But, you know, overall, yeah. where would you see that? In the center, in the center of town. Yeah. And to be in a place in Jerusalem where there's so many sacred sites, there's so many people that come from all over the world, really, that feel like, Jerusalem is a part of their story, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes very controversial between the Muslims and the Jews and Christians and mm -hmm. different takes on things. But um, so to realize, hey, yeah, there's history here, 
but there's present spiritual reality here as yeah. well. I think people are really spiritually hungry here. Yeah. And, and it's one of the reasons that people come here. And of course, there's something called Jerusalem syndrome, where tourists come here and they all of a sudden think that they're the Messiah or something like that, which is, I'm, I'm really glad. I think glad. one or two seem, on our tour got yeah, that. Yeah, that's no, right. But you're, you're seeming really stable right now, Mark, so that's really good. Uh, hey, I, I, before uh, we move on, I, I, I wanted to ask you, you have a new radio show on Moody Radio. Yes. It's called? Bold Steps. Ah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, here's how I know about it. I, I don't listen to a lot of radio. I have a screener who listens to radio and then brings the radio show to me and says on the podcast, you have to listen to this. That's my wife, Eva. And, <laughs> Come she, on, Eva. and she has been listening to Bold Steps, and she makes sure, okay, you got to hear Mark, and she brings it to me, and, and I listen. And I really am amazed because, I mean, I hear you teach at Moody, and I appreciate yeah. so much you open the word in such a practical way, and I'm so thrilled that the wider audience We'll hear this now. Yeah. And what, what's your goal? What do you what, what do you want to accomplish? You know, I, I've, I've had a program on Moody Radio Chicagoland for about twelve years, mm -hmm. but um, just recently, about I want to say maybe three, two or three months ago, it went nationwide. And here's the thing: I've been preaching and teaching for many years. I try to go straight to Scripture. I try to go verse by verse, but I try to really apply it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'm preaching in the setting, oftentimes there may be a plumber in the front row and a CEO in the back row and someone just coming out of gangs in the third row back and always unbelievers there as well. So I've called it Bold Steps because I, I believe that uh, my goal is that people not only understand the word, but that they apply the word and take bold steps of obedience in their life after they've heard and digested the Word. So there's a strong emphasis on application. Mm -hmm. I, I, and you know what? I, the very first time you preached in chapel for our student body, we had the faculty were there too, but it was really for our students, and you called them back to that one thing yeah. that, that is so precious that we sometimes forget when we're studying the Bible. Yeah. And it was just a really simple but powerful exposition of the scripture. I'm sure it's going to end up on bold steps. But I was so thrilled because too often we treat the Bible like it's an academic book and not a book that's really designed to transform our lives. And that's what bold steps does. It, it's calling us to true obedience, uh, to follow Jesus in a radical way. Yeah. And, and I, I love that. And I also like this. I like it that you say, King Jesus. I, I like that so much, and here's why. My wife signs all her letters, all for the king. Hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's something that is so crucial that we sometimes forget that he's not just some, uh, our Lord is not just some kind of wimpy, wispy-looking guy with a little yeah. glow behind his head like in a lot of pictures, but he's the king. He's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the universe. Yes. And, and I love it that you keep reminding and, us of and, that. And, you know, Michael, in part I do that because, you know, in Chicago, where I've preached for a long time, people use the word savior. And mm -hmm. he is savior. He is our savior. He mm -hmm. died. But oftentimes they forget. So the image of a suffering savior is ingrained throughout Chicagoland. But the image of a conquering king that we need to surrender our lives to, everybody wants a savior to forgive their sins but few people want a king to rule their lives. Mm -hmm. 
And Jesus comes in one package. You can't just choose the Savior package and not the King package. You know, He comes as, yeah, the Savior, but He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and, and as we follow Him, we have to declare, you rule over my life. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Now, listen, if you can't listen to Bold Steps every day, get the podcast on the Moody Radio app or on your podcast search. You can find it, listen to it. It's going to really encourage you every day to hear Mark teach the Bible in a really practical way. Thank you so much for joining me right hey, now. My pleasure. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back with more questions. That's, uh, if we've got people lined up. We're going to take more questions right here on this special open line recorded with a live audience in Jerusalem. Don't go away. More questions straight ahead. Israel is constantly in the news, facing political, diplomatic, and even violent struggles. What does the future hold? Chosen People Ministries, one of our underwriters, and an organization reaching Jewish people with the good news all around the world, is offering a book, Israel's Glorious Future. Written by their past president, Harold Sevener, this book details God's faithfulness to his covenant promises made to Israel in the past and biblical prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. God's Word reveals that despite current difficulties, Israel's future is certain and glorious. If you'd like a free copy of the book, Israel's Glorious Future, just go to openlineradio.org. That's our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down to the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel's Glorious Future. This is Michael Rydelnik reminding you that you're listening to a special pre-recorded edition of Open Line. So our phone lines are not open today, but please enjoy the rest of the program right here on Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Welcome back to the City of the Great King, where we're having a special pre-recorded edition of Open Line with a live audience. And I am so, this is one wonderful looking audience. I just want to tell you, they look great. And now our next question. Yes, my name is Carol. I'm from Chesterton, Indiana. My question is, who do you think the 24 elders are around the throne? <sighs> okay. Uh, I, let's see, I, I want to pull a book up that I wrote about, and then I can tell you what I thought they were. Uh, but uh, from memory, it seems to me, because they're dressed in white, that they are actual uh, members of the church. I, I don't know why they're chosen, but there are 24 elders that God has chosen from the church. The reason I say because they're dressed in white uh, is because white is the, the clothing that people who are redeemed wear. For example, in Revelation 19, the church, the bride of, the, of, of Messiah, is dressed in white. Uh, then the church returns with the Lord Jesus. So it appears to me that they are redeemed people uh, from the body of, of Christ, and they are there selected to worship. And so that's, that's but why, why them? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Hi, my name is Israel Fuentes. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Can you explain the millennial period more in depth? When does this period start to take place? and what events take place during this millennial reign of Christ? Okay, the millennial reign of Christ is an essential, it is, some people call it the millennial reign, 
because of Revelation 20. It means a thousand-year reign, and, and Revelation 20 d details that it, the reign of Messiah on earth will be for 1,000 years. Then there'll be a rebellion, and then after that rebellion is squelched, there's the judgment and the final white, great white throne judgment, and then the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But that 1,000-year reign, as best I can tell, it is a time when God fulfills his covenant promises to Israel. Israel, at the start, what, what really brings us about, there's going to be a time of pressure and persecution of Israel for seven years, and that pressure will lead Israel finally through the testimony of believers, who people who become believers in that seven-year period, it will lead the leadership of Israel to finally say, we need help, and they will turn in faith to Jesus the Messiah. And Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look upon the one who is pierced, they will mourn for him in repentance. And then in Revelation 19, it describes what will happen. The Messiah will return with the, the bride who has just been, uh, the, the, they've just had the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now they return, and they're clothed in white. And uh, it says in Zechariah 14, he returns with his holy ones. I believe that's a reference. Uh, uh, Zechariah didn't know who those holy ones were, but after Revelation 19, we see it's the body of Messiah returning. And I think that's a wonderful picture because so often, a lot of people aren't aware of this, that the church has been the source of persecution for the Jewish people. And finally, at the return of Jesus, uh, they will come with him to deliver the Jewish people from persecution and oppression. And, and that's going to be a really good thing. They're going to fulfill their destiny in doing that. And then there's going to be a judgment of the nations. And then what follows is the establishment of the messianic reign of Jesus right here on earth from Jerusalem. The scriptures say he will reign from Jerusalem. And the law will go forth, or instruction from God, that the word Torah can refer to the law of Moses, but it can mean a wider meaning of instruction. And in Isaiah 2, it says that instruction will go forth from the Lord, and, uh, and the people will learn. And it says that the nations will stream to Jerusalem, and there will be a temple there in the Messianic kingdom where people will worship the King, the Lord Jesus. And uh, the geography of this area will include the northern boundary up by the river, the Euphrates River, and all the way down to the river of Egypt, which is Wadi El Arish at the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. It will be a large kingdom that Jesus will reign over Jerusalem, Israel, and the world. And so that's a quick picture of the millennial kingdom. Uh, but the reason it's so crucial is because God fulfills his covenant promises to Israel. Yes. Yes, hi, my name is Debbie. I'm from Frankfurt, Illinois. Um, in Revelation, when everyone gathers in Jerusalem, what happens to the other nations? Do they still, do they still exist? Are they still physically there? Yeah, uh, it's one of the really cool things in Scripture is that uh, when you read the Psalms, I think the Psalms need to be read much more uh, as an end-time description than past. Because if you read in the Psalms, it talks about the nations coming to worship the king. And it emphasizes the nations. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about the coastlands knowing the Lord. Uh, in Isaiah 19, it even talks about two powerful empires that had been oppressive to the Jewish people. But in the Messianic kingdom, many of them will come to faith, and there will be a distinctive kingdom. So let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 19, 
It says, in that day, Egypt, uh, let's see, I'm going to scroll down. that day, uh, there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near her border. On that day, there will be a highway, it says in verse 23, from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will go to Egypt, Egypt to Assyria, and Egypt will worship with Assyria. So the Assyrian Empire that conquered Israel and Egypt that oppressed Israel, they're going to be worshiping the Lord in the Messianic kingdom. And it says, on that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing within the land. The Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. It says in Zechariah 14 that every nation will have to come up at the Feast of Sukkot to worship the Lord. And if they don't, they get no rain. That's what Zechariah 14 says. So yes, the nations, there will be many people at the judgment of the nations, at the end of the tribulation, there will be the, the sheep who, because they knew the Lord Jesus and had trusted in him, when the terrible persecution came against the Jewish people, they refused to go along with it. And they are the ones that the Lord Jesus says to at the judgment of the nations, inasmuch as you've done it for the least of these, my brothers, the Jewish people, you've done it for me. It was a reflection of their faith in Jesus. They have trusted him, they believe in him, and then they refuse to go along with it. And those Gentile nations, along with believing Israel, will enter the kingdom, but they won't be glorified yet. They will just, at the end of the tribulation, they enter the kingdom, and that means that they will have marriages, and they'll have children, and for a thousand years there'll be people, and they too, their children, will have to trust in Jesus in order for them to experience forgiveness. They will have to believe that Jesus died for them and rose again. So there will be people entering the kingdom who are not yet glorified, and they will be from Israel and from all the nations. And it's going to be a really glorious thing, and even the distant coastlands will come to worship him. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, and uh, sometimes I think people fail to realize that there are going to be people who still need to be glorified at the end of the millennial kingdom. But there's going to be people entering it just then. Well, can you believe it? That first hour is done. But there's a second hour on most of these stations. So stick with us. If you can't listen on, uh, on the radio, you can always listen online or on a podcast. During the break, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. That page has links to past programs and a link to giving online if that's what you'd like to do. You can receive our monthly Bible study resource, all sorts of things like that. The openlineradio.org page also has a link to my personal webpage if you're interested in that and to the Chosen People free gift. Open Line with Michael Radelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. (laughs) 